Time for breakfast. Trauma for Breakfast is a crowded table of wounded children, parents, spouses, caregivers, and weary souls. Together, we join in honest conversations about the behaviors and challenges of parenting and working with children who have experienced trauma. There's always room for one more at the table to share in the stories, science, and healing as we learn to better understand and care for each other. We are a table without shame or judgment because life can be hard and lonely, and we all know that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I'm Stacy. I'm a mother of seven children and have fostered for over 13 years. As an RN and former public school teacher, I quickly realized this type of parenting was not taught in a textbook or class. Let's learn together to parent different, not harder. Welcome to Trauma for Breakfast. Welcome everyone to Trauma for Breakfast. I am your host, Stacy, and I am thrilled today to bring on the Zalaskos, Tyler and Carrie. I really first want you to know that this couple, they are passionately and romantically in love. In fact, Carrie let me know that they prefer to be spooning as much as possible and like to do a lot of direct, intense eye contact during the day. So I'm just gonna ask that you guys, as we're doing this interview, maybe to keep a little separated you know, keeping things PG on our yeah. podcast today. But anyway, welcome Zalaskos. Okay, so you guys have been married 21 years. You have five kids, two dogs, a bunny, and 13 chickens. I won't ask you to rank them in order of, um, I don't know, most loved behaviors, things like that. But you guys, I, I will break it down for both of you. So Carrie basically said that she's an Enneagram 2, avid reader, committed ambivert, feeler of the big feels, comedian, lover of nostalgia, a wordsmith, and loves sitting in a chair and watching her chickens. So welcome, Carrie. Thank you. Happy to be here. And then Tyler, he is a licensed mental health counselor, and he owns the Human Wellness Collective, which provides therapy to a lot of people in our area. He's an avid researcher, a minimalist, Enneagram 5, and a committed introvert. He likes the smell of campfire on his clothes and the thrill of sleeping outdoors under the stars whenever Carrie boots him out because she's not an Enneagram 5, right? This is true. Yeah. (laughs) I'm excited to have you both on today. And I think you guys are going to lend such a great perspective to adoption. And and just in my um, interactions with both of you, I have really appreciated your wisdom and your knowledge and your authenticity in in walking this out. So I'll just just jump right out of the gate with a question for you guys. What do you wish you had known prior to bringing your kids into your home? Yeah, I think for me, it would just be just the level of trauma that they were dealing with, not just from like their perspective, but also like for me personally, how to deal with that. I think even doing counseling on a regular basis most of most of my training was not in the trauma realm as much. And so, you know, and then there's unique challenges within adoption and foster care that I think make that even more specialized. So I think, you know, we had really great foster trainers who did a really good job of, of explaining a lot of things. But I think just being able to really get an idea of like exactly what what that level of trauma was going to be like, I think would have been would have been helpful. I think there's also like, just the, how would I say that? Like, I wish I would have known 
that I, that I wasn't going to know a lot going in about certain things like one of our daughters who had significant like brain issues that nobody had ever checked into, nobody had ever done anything with. And so knowing that we weren't going to know the full story uh, of them coming in would have been, would have been helpful, I think as well. Yeah, I feel similarly. I think we expected to know the typical trauma, um, you know, like abandonment, physical abuse, sexual abuse. We knew that those would all be sort of really big possibilities. But yeah, with with our one daughter, it just was a lot larger. And the journey to find to get answers without help from her past, because it was pretty, I don't know, not just didn't have a ton of information was long. I mean, that was a long journey. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, what I wish I had known, we blended in a, in a kind of a unique way. We have one daughter that we adopted when she was four months old. And, you know, she was part of our family for almost five years before we brought home four at one time, four siblings at one time. I would have loved to have spoken with somebody who had done something similar or had expertise in the area of like, how do we get all of us together in a way that makes sense for their experiences and, and to also honor our first child, you know, like her needs. I felt like when the four came, you know, obviously that's a big number and I sort of sometimes feel a little guilty about our one daughter kind of being a little bit left in the dust a little bit in the, in the midst of all the craziness. So I think I would have, it would have been helpful to know how, how other families do that. Even if it's only one child coming into your home with an existing child, you know, like the number four for us was obviously a bigger number, but I think it would have been, it, it would have been a similar need for me, even if it was only one other child we were adding. I think that is such a, a great question and, and also topic because I have seen this also play out in my home where, you know, a lot of times one of my children will require a lot. And then I have children who tend to just go with the flow. And so they're not in my face with that sucking, gaping hole of need mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that you tend to keep filling. What has worked for you guys? What would you tell that family that's asking you how now you would look back and navigate that? I mean, I would say to not feel guilty about reserving the time for the first child. I think in my mind, I'm not going to speak for Tyler, but in my mind, the idea of us going with her away from them felt like a step back in progress. And so that I think for me, I would tell other families, don't feel bad about that. Do not feel bad about that. That's a very necessary way to stay connected with this original child who is also feeling a lot of new and different things, positive and negative. So I I think speaking to that specifically, that's what I would say. You know, and I, I like that you said that because I would, I, and I would add to that. I would also say that there'd be some intentionality to push in to those kids. And, and I will tell you this, just having uh, my two oldest are now adults. 
we started fostering when they were very little. And so it was always just this way of life. But I, one of the things that both of them have spoke to that I, I look back and, you know, you, you look back and you know better and you end up doing better. But at the time, you know, when we would have kids come and go or when hard things would happen, we were not real good about intentionally pushing into our biological kids because they didn't act like it bothered them. And we would just roll with things expecting our biological children at the time to also just roll with them. I, I wish that we would have done that, been in more intentional to push in the supports for them, but then also to carve out the time for them without feeling guilty around that. And I think even helping an adoptive family or adoptive parents figure out even what kind of words to use to communicate that with the new child or children in your home. Like that it's not, we need a break from you. You are hard. This is hard. We need to go back to the original three of us and really just, you know, like remember what that was like. And instead just try and figure out like, what are the safest words to use to communicate the need for this without making them feel even more disconnected from, from this new relationship. Ooh. All right. Well, give me the words. (laughs) Give you the words. Oh gosh. I mean, I think sometimes we we could use, Tyler and I would use these things when we would go out on dates, Um, especially with our first child, you know, she's very connected to us and it was just her for a very long time. So there were times where she would have a hard time understanding like, why, like, why do we need to go by ourselves? And so, I mean, off the cuff, I would say, I think it's beneficial for all of us to just have a minute to just have some private conversations and to just do some check-ins, you know, kind of, and maybe even use an example of how we've already done that for them. You know, like remember the other day when, you know, just you and I went for a walk around the block a couple of times just to chat. Like this is something very similar to that, except both dad and I want to spend this time with her as well, both checking in at the same time. I mean, that's probably the best I can come up with quickly. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know specifics, but I just think like, like I think a lot of times it's about like they think it through the lens of fairness. It's not fair, you know, or whatever. And so even just pointing out, like Carrie was saying, like you know, well, we you know we did this only it looked like this, you know, but we're going to do it over here differently. It's going to look a little bit different because everyone's needs are different. Yeah, yeah. I um I did a silly exercise with my my kids um, because that fairness thing comes up. And you can actually do this in the classroom as well, where our daughter asked for a Band-Aid on her finger. And so I gave her a Band-Aid and then I walked around and told all my kids, well, I'm putting a Band-Aid on your finger and putting a Band-Aid on your finger. And they're like, why? And I'm like, because it's fair. That's what's fair. And they're like, well, yeah, but she has a cut finger. I don't need a Band-Aid. Mm. And so then you're able to kind of say, and just, it's a good, I think, object lesson illustration about what is fair is actually not what we do in our family. It's what you need. And at the time she needed a Band-Aid and you didn't. And so she needs time or he needs time and you're okay right now. And it is hard. It's hard, especially as, you know, with a lot of kids to juggle those things. Tyler, I would love to ask you, I, I like what you said earlier about being a mental health therapist and kind of not feeling as prepared to deal with the trauma end of things. What has changed within your practice, even having parented kids with early adversity and, and how you relate to those who now come to your practice? Uh, well, I think it, it starts by like not seeing kids personally in my practice. Um, 
I used to and been going from kids from hard places and dealing with hard things in my practice and then going home to that is also like, it just was too much. Right. And so I think just drawing that boundary for myself and just saying, I'm just not going to see kids or even teenagers at this point, you know, so, so that was helpful. But I think even just, you know, it just sort of forced me to go out and, and find some of the training that I needed to, to get a little bit more into that. I think attachment is one of those things that I did not get any of that in my training or in my program that I went through. And so learning more about attachment and understanding that like attachment doesn't even have to do necessarily with trauma, that like you can have fairly decent parents and still develop attachment issues, you know? And so it's, you know, that's probably been the attachment piece has probably been the most transformative piece of all of that. I love that you said that because I'm a, I'm an attachment theorist. <laughs> That's what I would like to say. And, and yeah. really, I, I really believe when we can understand our own attachments and attunements to our, our parents and our families of origin, we can better understand how we parent and where we parent from. I, I appreciate you saying that. And I think it's really interesting because you know, that's not even something I, I received in any trainings, you know, as a nurse or as a teacher or as a foster adopt parent, never was that even touched on. Um, I, I just think like that should just be a mandatory component of understanding how you operate as a parent. Yeah. Right? So when you work with your clients that are adults now, do you dig into that some Tyler and how do you, if you do? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I think for me, like, I think the way I try to boil attachment down is, is the question of how do I know that I can, that I matter and how do I know that I can trust you to show me that I matter? And so I think that's, that's kind of the helpful thing is like, so even just asking people like, okay, when you were growing up, how did you know that you mattered? Or did you think that the people around you, do you did you think you could trust them to show you that you mattered, right? Or how did they show you that, they, that you didn't matter? You know, what were the things that you started to think and believe about yourself as a result of how you were treated, you know, growing up? And, and it's, I think it's been a really helpful, you know, component to, you know, to helping that. And then getting into some of the more specifics or feel like you're a little bit more avoidant because you do these things or maybe a more little more anxious because you're doing these things and, and to, to see it on the, the spectrum of like, you know, rarely do I come into contact with somebody in my office that has like a really secure attachment style. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, most of the time. And I think I, one attachment expert was, was saying that it, like we've been in even a generational decline in attachment over the last, you know, hundred years or so. And it's so that you're starting to see more and more attachment issues happening, even outside of the, the idea of trauma. Um, you know, trauma is an easy way to kind of see it because it, it tends to be a little bit more prevalent, but, but it's, it's really all over the place. Well, and I think that matches the statistics across the nation where we're seeing people struggling more with depression and severe anxiety, right? And, and when you look at the, the need as humans to be supported within village and community, we're losing that. And some of that's technology, right? I mean, we're really losing those relationships. And so I love to think of, I, I like what you said about asking, like, did you matter or do you feel safe? And, and really like, that's what I look at because though the answer to those questions is what drives that tape in your head? What is that inner narrative telling you on the day to day, especially yeah. when you're stressed out? So when you are triggered or stressed out, what is your brain saying? Is it saying, well, of course that happened. You're, you know, you're stupid. You're not worthy. You're not enough. Right. What is that inner narrative saying? And when, when we recognize that our kids have that constant shame, blame narrative playing in their head, it helps inform us. And it also helps us, I've heard it said this way, it helps us decrease our attack surface because I don't, I'd love to hear if you guys see this in your home, but what I recognized when I brought in children with early adversity is that they 
basically exposed all of my crap, right? Because they're, they subconsciously are looking at your surface and going to subconsciously trigger things in you that you've not dealt with. And so decreasing your attack surface is basically owning your crap, right? And so that that's a hard place to be because I felt like I was a really good parent mm-hmm. until I started parenting. <laughs> and it was really exposed stuff in me. Carrie, what are your thoughts around some of this? Do you see that in how it plays out for you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I, I, I find myself as a mom operating from a place of fear a lot of the times in my decision making. So my my if my answer is an immediate no, I would say nine times out of 10, it's because I don't understand it or I'm afraid of it. And I know that that, that is also partly how I was parented. So as they get older, as our kids get older, they're between 10 and 16. So the 16 year old in particular right now is, you know, we're just like constantly knocking at the door of another big transition, another, like another life marking moment. You know, we've got going to get a job, going to get a car, going to have a girlfriend, going to do this, you know, like all these big things. I feel like the last probably 18 months for me has been pretty transformative in the way of like, think about your no. Why are you saying no? I have some really great friends, really close friends who I will reach out to a lot and say, I feel like I'm missing the mark on this. And I want you to tell me where I might be missing the mark on this or why, like, I'm afraid of this. Can you help me work through this from an objective, more of an, of an objective standpoint than if I were to go to Tyler, you know, we're both so immersed in it and it affects both of us so deeply that I don't think I could go to him and say, am I missing the mark on this? And have him be like, yes, you are. I think you just like, yes, we're, we're, we're doing the right thing. And, and, and he's the problem. You know, like we, we both can't, there are times where we both just cannot go to each other with that kind of thing because it's just too much at the moment. So anyway, all of that to say it would be, yeah, understanding where that's coming from for me, teaching myself about the the scary thing and then trying to determine is this a way that I can, you know, connect with them and do it differently and feel better about that path? But yeah, I think I'm, I don't know if I'm fully answering your question, but that's kind of how I'm approaching the attachment thing is there, there is a lot of, of my past and I didn't have any significant, you know, like marked trauma moments in my life, but you know, there's enough there that it factors in. And then to think about what the motivation is behind it is also big for me too. You know, like, why am I saying yes to this? You know, like, or why am I saying no to this? This is because I feel like if I don't, then they won't for me, you know, cause as uh, at any grab too, that, that also factors really big into, into my day-to-day parenting with them is, you know, like there's that piece of, I have to be something else so that you will love me. And so that you will need me. I have to give you something so that in return, I get that for me too. It's complicated. It really does. <laughs> and it's such a weird way bring out the absolute worst, but the absolute best sometimes too. I think you answered it very well. I think when you 
step back and look at this, you, you realize like what I, I like that, that thing that you instantly answer no to, or want to answer no to should be kind of like this little alarm in your head going, wait, whoa, 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 what is pushing? What's what preconceived notion is moving me to this. And that preconceived notion can be culture. It can be um, your church background. It can be the family of origin. It could be your neighborhood. It can be there all, you know, your school experience and all these things that you bring with you into adulthood and into parenting. And so I think what I hear you say and what we try and do, at least for me, because I have a pretty extensive trauma history as a child where I will literally step back and not answer yes or no right then, because I know I'm not answering them from a space that's actually probably very regulated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm answering them from the past. That's what yeah. I like to say. I need to answer you in the present, not from my past. And that to me is the hardest thing to do because my past has a lot of fear and I want to protect my kids and I can't, you can't protect your kids from your past. Mm -hmm. And that's where like you get to that place and you're like, okay, when I can get to that space. But I, I love too how you said that about how you can't ask Tyler in the moment, because when you're the ones living in that kind of stormy yeah. life, you're not asking mm -hmm the person with you in the hurricane, whether you're safe in the hurricane, right? Like, yeah. no, you've got to look to outside sources to tell you, cause we're, we're on the outside looking in and you're, you're in the red zone or whatever. So good advice. One last question before we end part one. And then just so you guys all know, part two is going to be amazing. We're going to be talking about some specific application things, but I'd like to know this is a, something that you had said to me, and I love how you said this, and it's, it's going to be a little sticky. So take a moment if you need to before you answer. I love how you said you tried in the beginning to present your kids just like any, quote, normal, neurotypical kid because you didn't want them to have that trauma stigma, but how you recognize that this has been something you can't really do. So please, if you guys just tell me both, tell me about this. I probably didn't discover that I was doing that or yeah, I probably didn't discover I was doing that until a couple years in, I think. And when I say a couple years in, there's, uh, there's, there's just one really big marker. I don't, with our first that we adopted, uh, she was in 2010. So we really didn't get into the thick of trauma and trauma responses and all of the big things that come with parenting kids from trauma until we brought the four home. So that was in 2015. So I probably didn't dial into that until a couple years, a couple years later. And I don't want to belabor the whole Enneagram thing, but I read, this was now several years ago, a book, um, the road back to you kind of an Enneagram primer, you know, as far as just like getting your feet wet a little bit. And it really truly changed the way I thought about me because it helped me sort of validate some things that felt really big to me that I couldn't figure out why it didn't feel big to Tyler or it didn't seem to affect him as much or, and even other people in my life. And so when I identified one of my children you're not supposed to, they say you're not supposed to type your kids. And I respect that as I'm, as I'm reading the book though, there are things that I'm like, I a hundred percent know this particular child of mine is an eight. And once I read the section about eights, I really started to understand a lot more about what motivates each of us and why it's so different. 
And then I looked back on the last couple of years and thought, I've been trying this whole time to protect them from everybody else's assumptions. And that's, there's some good to that. And then there's some, there's some harmful things to that. You know, they're the benefits of people. And when I say people, I don't mean the public. I mean, teachers and principals and really close friends and um, like church workers, people who work with them directly. When I started to think about that, I thought I am doing them a pretty big disservice by trying to normalize or trying to pass them off as quote unquote normal because there is benefit to people, small numbers of people understanding where your kids are coming from and what their needs truly are. But yeah, that I think it, it took me a couple of years to be like, I've been trying so hard to have them look like they've always been a part of our family and they came, and they came to, I mean, even though they're all black, so, and we're white. So like, I've been trying so hard to get them to get it to look like they've always belonged to us so that they could really truly have what I wanted for them, which was a fresh start. And that was just a really short-sighted, it's not unkind, I know, right. you know, but it was a really short-sighted way to look at it. And so I, I feel strongly about both things, you know, like why I wanted to do that, but then also why I shouldn't do that either. Tyler, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I, mean, I think part of it, you know, you do it, we did it, I think initially just because I don't think there's ever anything that we sat on and talked about or, you know, whatever. I think it just, it just felt natural to want to like more protection for them, you know, more kind of shielding them from, from things. I'm sure that there's probably, there's probably a decent balance to that. Yeah. Though, you know, like there, there's, there's probably things that, you know, you do want to shield them from, but again, there's also times where you're like, we can't hide it. Right. You know, the joke is like, yeah, my kids are adopted, but don't tell them we haven't, you know, it's like, no, they're black. <laughs> they're, they, they're very obviously, you know, we did not give birth to these children, but. Well, I, I'm going to interrupt you really fast yeah. and say, when they come from the foster system and, and our four were in the system for two and a half years, two of them were in the same home and then the other two were in separate homes. So three different foster parents involved. One of them was labeled a behavioral placement because he was having very normal trauma responses that were labeled as behavioral and had all these diagnoses and all this medication and everything. So the story, and I think you'll remember what I'm talking is we were at the park here after they came home and he was wanting to go down the slide. And in our town, there is this awful slide at the park that is a twirly slide. It's metal. It's the stairs are steep. I just want my kids to go up and straight down because like they want to play games up on the stairs. I'm like, someone is going to lose a limb falling down these stairs. So he's waiting to go down the slide and this one kid was taking his time or wouldn't move and took him forever. He finally goes on the slide. And I think it was, it, I think it was you that had asked him like, what was the deal on the, you know, like, or what was the issue on the top of the slide? He's like, well, I just needed him to like either go down a slide or move out of my way. And, and he wasn't, he's being rude. And I, so I told him I have anger problems. <laughs> and like, I don't think a child who hadn't been told multiple times by teachers or by an unkind foster parent or which we know at least two of his were unkind and not great safe places to live you know like that's just not a normal thing 
to announce mm -hmm. to somebody you just don't even know. Like as I an have anger problems. Yeah, as an eight-year-old. Yeah, at eight. <laughs> and we're like, okay, well, don't have anger problems. Like, you know, like, so we had to talk through that. But anyway, that's just, it was another thing for me that I was, you know, it, I just felt sad. I felt really sad that this was something he knew about himself or knew something because somebody else told him multiple times that he thought, well, if I just share it, maybe he'll understand. I, I love that you touched on this because we, we don't want to, to, we want to praise character in our kids, not label them. And, and honestly, okay. Anger problem, that it's a problem when anger is actually an emotion that's good and normal and people have, and shouldn't be stigmatized as something that's a problem per se, right? right. He's communicating some type of deep fear. I appreciate what you said, because I feel like we walk that line a lot with our kids because we like to, I think as a community or as an, as humankind, we want to think that adoption is the cure for trauma, yeah. right? And it isn't the cure for trauma. Uh, my kids will forever have trauma responses or reactions to things. And for me, I want to normalize for them their emotions around it. I want to normalize and say, yep, there is zero shame, zero shame in your early experiences. Okay. Yeah. This is something that happened to you. It is not a core anger problem or a core issue. This right. is a way you are communicating that internal pain. And I want to emotionally validate what you're experiencing because that was painful and hard. Yeah. I appreciate that. All right. We, you guys need to join us for part two when I'm going to be working and talking with those Alaskos around some application in their home and in the community of how they are supporting their kids and themselves. We, we talk about the guts of adoption. We're so thankful that you all shared in today's conversation. We are always here and ready to set one more place at the table. Thanks for joining us on Trauma for Breakfast. Trauma for Breakfast is brought to you and supported by Matt Force, working together to reduce substance abuse, and Yavapai County Community Health Services, working toward healthier communities.